want to remind you about our friends at Bioptimizers. They have massozymes, the most complete, most potent digestive enzyme, with over 102% more protease than the nearest competitor, 300 to 500% more per serving than most popular brands. Protein, of course, a complex macronutrient needs to be broken down and undigested. Well, you can't use it. A massozyme not only contains protease, it contains 13 additional enzymes, including lipase for fat digestion at every pH level. It, of course, works from 2 to 12 pH. In other words, at every stage of the digestive process. All of this makes massozymes a complement to any healthy plan. You can watch Massozymes rapidly dissolve raw steak when you go to massozymes.com slash Drew. It's just like it sounds. It's just like it sounds. M-A-S-S-Z-Y-M-E-S dot com slash D-R-E-W. And you get it risk-free today. They have a 365-day full money-back guarantee. It is the gold standard in the industry. Why not try it? If you don't feel how Massozymes helps you upgrade your digestion, support team will give you a no-question-asked refund. It's that simple. There's no risk. Finally, when you go to masszymes.com slash Drew, be sure to enter the coupon code Dr. Drew10, D-R-D-R-E-W-10, to receive that 10% discount off your order. The deal is for a limited time, only while quantities last. If you like my show, you're going to love the Lady Gang podcast on Podcast One. Join the ultimate Hollywood girl posse, Entertainment Tonight's Kelty Knight and actress Becca Tobin and fashion designer Jack Vanek as they critique all things pop culture with some fabulous guests like singer, dancer, and judge on The Masked Singer, Nicole Scherzinger. Check out The Lady Gang every Tuesday and Thursday on Podcast One or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Dr. Podcast. Keep those wins in the sails of the Corolla pirate ship. Uh, don't forget to check out at drdrew.com. We do a streaming show. We try to do it on a daily basis. Uh, and then the weekends, we have Ask Dr. Drew. It's a call-in show. Also, uh, After Dark is going to uh, switch to call-ins in, in uh, right about now. And uh, me and Christina P. are going to kind of team up there a little bit more. That's over at your mom's house. And, uh, of course, thank you for supporting this podcast and the people that support us today, my buddy Ryan Holiday. You're described as best-selling author, creator of The Daily Stoic. Yes. Which I read The Daily Stoic every day. Oh, yeah? Yeah. You know there's a podcast version, too? I, I, I read it every day. Well, you actually link to a podcast on it, don't you? Yeah, the bottom yeah. of the email. Yes. And I keep thinking I'm going to do it, and then I don't. And that's not being a good Stoic. <laughs> that's being what I am. But uh, it looked, you know, I, I think, you know, Ryan and I go back 30 years, 35 years. No, what? That doesn't make sense. I'm only 32. Okay, so 20 uh, years? 20, uh, well, I was probably listening to Loveline when I was like 10. But I ran into you. Tell that yes. story again real quick. Okay, so I was in college. So Feels this like it was been, 30 years ago. No, this, this is like... <laughs> That's really fi- funny. This is maybe... Fi- I think this is maybe 15. It's got to uh, be more This is like that. 2005, 2006. So All not right. that long ago. Okay. But, uh, it feels longer. It does. Yeah. It does. I feel very old. But Mm-mm-mm. Go ahead. Uh, no, so I was in college and you were speaking at a... Uh, at a conference put on by thing. Trojan condoms. Yeah, it was some little thing for uh, college journalists or something. Yes. Yeah, right. Yes, and then uh, and that's how I got introduced to Stoicism. So you totally changed my life. Well, he, you came up to me afterwards, and you were – I remember you and just going, what are you, what are you, what are you reading right now? And I was like, well, I'm reading this guy Epictetus. I'm trying yeah. to struggle with his Enchiridion, and I, and, I, and I think there's something in it. Yeah, and I, I went back to my hotel room and I bought it and I bought Marcus Aurelius. 
And those two books totally changed the trajectory of my life. Tell me, I've never asked you how. What was the process you went through in that moment? Did you that, of why did, they changed? Why and what the process was? Did you kind of wake up as you were reading them, or did they were they immediately? Oh my God, this is an interesting perspective. I get it. I think it's more that. And and when you read the Stoics, you're like, oh, this is like real people giving real life advice, but it's not your parents. You know, this is it's not. There's no. There's like if, if let's let's say it's you 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 pick up some religious text or someone by some religious figure their 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 authority rests on whether you believe God exists or not. Do you know what I mean? To some extent, yet within there, there's real wisdom, right? To- I mean, totally. Yeah. But but if you don't buy into the, it's the, harder. It's, it's harder. much harder. Yeah. And so the it, what I love about the Stokes is that. They're making a totally logical case for being a good person, for managing your emotions, for not being an asshole. All, all Leading that. a good life. It's yeah. what Aristotle was talking about, right? And yeah. they, they're, they're sort of operationalized Aristotle's philosophy. Yeah, and they're much more accessible than Aristotle yeah. and, and, and much more straight and to the point and there's no big words in there. And I, it's interesting to me that we are living in a time when people go, oh, anything by old white men, forget it. And yeah. they, I... I like I'm fascinated by the guys that set up our government. I think it's a crazy bright group that sure. crazy insight into an extraordinary system. And people always push back, why should I care about old white men from 200 years ago? And I started thinking, why should you care about old white Romans from 2,000 years ago? Why should you care about a guy with a beard three 2,000 years ago sure. too that uh, claimed he was the Messiah? Oh, oh, these people have nothing to offer humanity or – in spite of them being old white men, there's something there. Well, and, and, but also it's super reductive and, and maybe even absurd to describe you know, a group of people who are from as far away as Spain and Syria and Iraq and Turkey yeah. uh, as, as just a bunch of white guys, right? Yes, yes. Um, and, and also that you – know, so even in those two, right, Marcus Aurelius and, and Epictetus. So one of those was a slave and the other was an emperor. So right. in two people, you have the full spectrum of human experience. You have extreme power and extreme powerlessness. The idea that those two, that, that those two perspectives could agree on anything is incredible. And did that strike you at the beginning when you first started yeah. reading? And, and so I, I would argue – and you t- I'm a, less than a dilettante on stoicism, although I listen to your stuff, I read your stuff. Again, the new book is Stillness is the Key. Everybody go get it. My kids like this one the best. Thank you. And, and I like the first one, uh, The Obstacle is the Way. Yeah. That was my favorite. And it's interesting that that – because it was so deep in history, that one. Yeah. So many great anecdotes about history. And to me, it's like that's how I learn. It's like look at people that me really too. did something. But where was I going? Uh, the fact that one was an emperor and one was a slave, in my less than dilettante understanding of, of stoicism, I would argue that they are both still at the whim of fate. Totally. Uh, and what's your little coin say? Amor fati. Amor fati. Yeah. Well, that sits in front of me every day. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Uh, T- tell them about that and, tell, and comment about what I just said. No, so, so both of them are, are at the whim of fate. And, and there's what's so interesting about Epictetus is so he's a slave, but he's not like working the fields. He's a slave owned by one of Nero's secretaries. Mm-hmm. And so in his observations, he's, he's, he's like, look, I'm a slave, but – He's like, I'm watching my boss suck up to Nero's cobbler, you know, to get to, <laughs> yeah. to win favor. And yeah. he's wa- so he's watching these, quote unquote, powerful Romans basically debase and humiliate themselves to win the favor of this deranged 
tyrant. And and, and uh, there's this one scene where he talks about somebody comes to his boss and says, you know, I only have a, a million dollars or something, and he's like, oh my god, how how are you how are you surviving? You know, and he what Epictetus realizes is that even these very powerful people are not free, mm. and that and that actually freedom is certainly a legal status, but there are there are plenty of people who have unlimited wealth and unlimited resources who may in fact actually be worse off have less choice in their lives than Epictetus does so so i think at the core of stoicism is this realization that that uh, actually freedom is sort of an internal choice and and what's fascinating about Epictetus is that he becomes like Toussaint Levanteur uh, the 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 Haitian uh, former slave who leads this uprising over in, in Haiti and, and defeats Napoleon, James Stockdale when he's in prison in Vietnam. People ter- end up turning to Epictetus over and over again, realizing that, oh, there's actu- like, you can actually find sort of freedom even inside captivity. John, uh, uh, the senator, John, John McCain. Uh, McCain carried Epictetus with him yeah. in, in Hanoi or wherever he was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, so yeah, I, I think I think it's it's realizing – and then when you read Marcus Aurelius, you actually it, – it can be a little bit depressing because he's kind of like – he's so circumscribed as far as – you know, I was I was actually just thinking about this the other day. Have you seen the Taylor Swift documentary on Netflix? I just started watching a little bit of it's, it, yeah. There's this one scene in it where she decides she wants to – I found it kind of insufferable. It's very clearly sort of propaganda. Ish, and, yeah. But there is this one revealing scene where she um, she's decided she wants to sort of speak out politically. She wants to talk about this like Senate race in Tennessee, and she basically has to like go to her advisors and her parents and all the yeah. and she's like weeping, begging them to let her say what she thinks. Yeah. And you realize like, oh, it's actually probably not that fun to be Taylor Swift, right. and that you she might have millions of dollars, she might have a hundred million Instagram followers. But it's not actually as – it could be freer if she wanted it to be, but it's not as free as you think. She starts talking at the very beginning about being – requiring approval that, yes. that she needs and that's what she's still doing with all yeah. the people around her. Yeah. She has to – Well, and then she's just kind of – she sure, she's the head of this machine. Yeah. But the machine owns her yeah. more than she owns the machine. Well, that is interesting. I, I have felt that the, the pursuit of – you know – this country was founded on the idea of casting off governmental restrictions. Yeah. Uh, and yet I think a lot of what we're dealing with these days is still trying to feel free. Yeah. Uh, and and Epictetus is a great he, – he was – for me, he was sort of had echoes of Sartre a little bit too. I don't know if you okay. agree with that. No. In, in the sense that you, you choose to be what you are and he chooses to – Sort of realize that his there's something deep in him that nobody can own. Yes. Yeah. And, and you, the Stokes call that the inner citadel. Mm. That's like our sort of fortress. That the soul is the one thing that's ours. So even when you're in prison, let's say, and and obviously this is easy to say, not being in prison. Um, they've the, all all the Stokes would say is that you've imprisoned my body. My soul is still free to do whatever it wants. Well, to me, the most vivid uh, rendition of that in Epictetus is when his boss, his owner, is breaking his arm or leg his or something. Leg. Yeah. yeah, and he's just like, "Go ahead." He's like, "You're bra- you're going to break my leg." Yeah. He's like, "You're but going you're not to break, gonna my, break leg. my citadel." Or, yes. Yeah. Yeah. He says, uh, "Yeah, you can break my leg, but you sort of can't break my my soul." Mm. Um, which again, very very easy to say. 
and hard to do. And then I think what is incredible is you go, okay, that was 2,000 years ago. This was a slave. But then I've been, I, I just gave this talk at this Air Force base uh, in, in Europe, and we were talking about Stockdale because Stockdale is the sort of most modern of the Stoics. Um, and, explain who he is to us. So James Stockdale was shot down over Vietnam in, in 1963 or five, and he had studied Epictetus at Stanford, and he's the highest-ranking prisoner of war in, 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 uh, at that time. And so he goes in there, and he basically sees this as this sort of opportunity to try out this philosophy. And, you know, like at this one point, they, uh, they, they were going to sort of parade him in front of these cameras. And so he, like, beats the shit out of himself with a stool. So he can't be on camera as a model prisoner. He tries to commit suicide at one point. He basically creates a sort of culture of defiance. So he's like, yes, you, you sort of physically contain me. Mm. But you can't tell me what to do. Like you can. Is he the one that memorized the names of all the other prisoners around him and stuff? So he yeah, and they had this. Like, co- yeah. They had this code language with right, each other. Right. When when he got back, he he like put certain other prisoners like up for medals, and then he reported other prisoners. Like he was like yeah. keeping in his mind yeah, yeah, like yeah. commendations and demerits. Wow. Like, um, so, so yeah, we think this is so distant, but I mean, this guy only died like a few years ago. Uh, yeah. And I was alive during all that stuff going yeah. on. And, it's, uh, and I, and I, ugh, I remember how awful that was. And that's, that's the part, the perspective that I feel like all the resistors and things don't have today. There was very, very significant goals trying to be attempted whenever people were resisting. Then it was get out of Vietnam. We can't stand this. Get out yeah. now. Get, and we need a civil rights uh, amendment now. We need it right now. Yeah. And it's not, Hey, resist. Resist? What? What? What are we going to do? Sure. What? What's the goal here? What? Help me understand. Yeah, I guess there's just this sort of uh, yeah, or even just the idea of wokeness as its own accomplishment. You right. Know? It kind uh, of is a hollow. It's a yes. hollow something. I don't know what it's. It's. It. I feel like it's starting to collapse on itself a little bit. Well, Not that the ideas aren't good. There's some good ideas in there. It's just the. The, the the mandate, the demand for purity is the part that's collapsing. We did this email for Daily Stoic a couple of days ago, and I think the title was like, when everyone is woke, no one is awake. Mm. And the idea being that like wokeness is fine, as it provided it's some sort of consistent ideology, right? Right. But the problem is- That's the part I keep asking for. Like, what do you want? What are you doing? What do you want? What's the, where are we going? Or, or that you actually apply these things evenly, right? Yes. So it, it's like you can't, you can't sort of be for racial justice and then sort of bully people because, you know, somebody else on the internet said that they were guilty of something. You have right. to actually, like, you have to respect the rights of sort right. of everyone. So it's, it's uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's- um, Tolerance in the name of intolerance. Yeah. No, intolerance in the name of tolerance, mm-hmm. right? You, you, you're dem- it's it's uh, back to Rousseau. Demanding tolerance. If you won't cooperate, we're going to make you do it. Yeah. That's not tolerance anymore. No, no. And and so oh, – He was the biggest sham of all time. Take a look at him. Oh, I, he's I, the, I, worst. the worst. The worst. The worst. He, he had fathered five children and he just left them in the street essentially. No, he, he just dropped them off in an yeah, orphanage. Yeah, right. Yeah, That's the same yeah, thing. Right. And, and, all, and the death rate was like 80% for those kids at that yeah. time in France. And the, Many writes books about like educating children. Yes, and, and, the, and the, he carted that woman around just as his sort of semen receptacle, and she. I told him, and, and then he, you know, I, I looked at, I read his history, his uh, what, what's his confessions. Yeah, and he gets run over by a carriage when he's like fifty years old, unconscious for a while, and then starts getting really paranoid about um, the guy that wrote Candide. 
Oh, Voltaire? Voltaire. He gets very paranoid about everybody. I think it was all related to the head injury. Oh, interesting. Because yeah, he, he gets really crazy at the end. Well, have you read uh, Paul Johnson's book, Intellectuals? No, I love Paul Johnson. Though. So I, I do too. Yeah. But he basically does like a biography. It's like it's sort of a biography of Voltaire and Johnson – sorry, and – and Marx and and sort of all these people, he basically defines an intellectual as someone who cares about ideas more than people. Yes, and and sort of the and and actually that's sort of a resurgent idea we see today, where where you know people are going, well, I don't care if so. Look at the homeless. Gu- Look at the homeless no. thing. Yes. This is this is what I'm fighting right now in this state. Ideology and there's so many examples. Please write your next book about this. Okay. How ideology hurts humans. I frame it because when you love this book, then yeah, I know. Whenever there is an ideological, a rigid ideological framework that prevails, millions of people suffer and die. And right now on our streets is two ideologies, which is who are you to tell these people what to do, number right. one. And then number two, we have to have this Prop 47 here because we cannot allow drug addicts to go into the prison system. Can't. can't yeah. None. Zero. Yeah. Right. So we're going to kill them. We're going to let them just die on the streets. Well, I, I see this. So I live in sort of rural Texas, but right outside Austin. And so and I have a house in Austin. So it's great for me that they have we have all these restrictive zoning laws and you yeah. can't – there's no housing density. So on the one hand, my property in Austin is skyrocketing because people want to move there and yeah. they can't. On the other hand, where I live in rural Texas, I'm watching how right outside city limits uh, – they're building RV parks and mobile home parks. That's good. No, no, it's terrible. I mean, it, because these people can't live in an apartment in sure, Austin because sure. they can't build a 40-story yeah. apartment complex, these people are forced into living in okay. RVs in the middle of fields, right? Okay, okay. So, so my point is that people in Austin are congratulating themselves for oh. protecting the character of right, their neighborhood. Right, right, right. For, it, yeah, for, again, hurting you know, people. Right. But, but – you know, 20 yes. miles down the road, people are actually suffering for this idea, yes. Yes. and it's out of sight, out of mind. And, and, and generally, I, and I'm going to say something provocative, it has been my – no, it's not, it's not true. But I'm going to say – let me say this as carefully as possible. The market tends to help level the playing field with all this, though – Free market left to itself creates inequalities. Yes. So it too needs its own kind of, of course con- constraints. Yeah, the free yeah. market is not the problem here. It's the yeah. restraint of the free market exactly. is preventing it, people from building from, what they want. Exactly. So the people in the RVs can then have – so the prices come down so yes. the people in the RVs will have access. Instead, they, they monkey with the market but they prevent the market from proceeding as opposed to just limiting the excesses of the market, yeah, which because, is a different be, thing. Because someone can't build a 70-story luxury condo, which would make uh, a regular apartment complex cheap enough for someone who's currently living in an RV to live in there, yeah. they are forced further and further from town, yeah, yeah. inflicting and, – and we're seeing this in California too. Like Part of the reason we're having all these fires is because people are being – Pushed further and further into, into the these wilderness, yeah, right. and and with without any sort of intelligent planning or zoning. Right. Behind That's it. exactly right. Uh, but uh, but again, the, this homeless thing here, it's it's willing to kill people, yeah, to stand for their ideology, and that that's not good. That is never good. And it, there there are pragmatic. You know, it's like. Oh, that's another field for you to get into. Pragmatism. Yeah, because we need a dose of that these days. Sure. The the pragmatism is the opposite of ideologue. 
Yeah. Well, no, it's like, hey, look, you have to have a solution. It's not going to please everyone, but it's going to make it do the better. best. You make the yeah. best for people. That's all you make, come up with. You know, can do pragmatic solutions that are the best. I mean, and it, it is it, it, what's I think so interesting about it is like the sort of stereotype is like the sort of right is has become the anti-science, mm-hmm. whatever, you know, anti-economics. And there's part of that in Trumpism. Then you look at the left and you're like. Um, why is it the cities that are most tolerant of homeless people have the most homeless people? You know, why? Like, it's, yeah. it's not, it's, it's, we are staring in the face of pretty solvable problems. Oh, yeah. But nobody, but nobody wants to question their ideology exactly. so we don't solve the problem. Exactly. Yeah. I, I love the fact that we're seeing that when you mentioned the right and the left, I think the whole thing is kind of the right and left is starting to get. Nobody likes either side anymore. Yeah, at least right. the majority. Right. And, and there's these things called dinos and rhinos now that are develop that are popping up all over the place. Dem- oh yeah. Democrats in name only. Sure. Republican in name only. Yeah. I think that's hysterical. They're, right. They're, each one of those is a Trojan horse, which is going to hopefully diminish the excesses on both sides. Yeah. 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 It's. it's I'm hoping. But but it, but this idea that you know basically. I people matter like results matter yes not the ideas or the signaling like the stoics are interested in virtue not sort of virtue signaling so it's like what are you actually doing for people Um, well discuss virtue and virtue ethics so what what is the sort of final common pathway in virtue would you say so there's this quote from Marx really he goes sort of like do the right thing the rest doesn't matter you know and and so this idea that like you as an individual have to do what you think is right. Uh, and, and obviously there's sort of – That's com- confusing com- to people these there's days. There's competing frameworks in this. But like I think it's – I was thinking about this with sort of Mitt Romney and the impeachment vote. Like whether you agree with it or not is to me beside Irrelevant. the point. Yeah. That we can't even respect a person making what was clearly a principled and difficult decision – for which there was no personal upside for them, yeah. you know, and so we we can't like we can't even respect that anymore. And then we turn around the next day and complain that more people don't take right. sort of moral stands, right? That's and it's exactly like you've right. not created a market for people to do that, right? right? In fact, we're, quite the opposite. Yeah, we're, we we go. Uh, yeah, we're convinced that. If if a person isn't a perfect messenger, we cannot accept the message that they're sending. Do you have any sense how we're going to erode this other than my dinos and rhinos? I don't know. I mean, I I, I do hope in some sense that these sort of movements just collapse under the weight That's of their own it, moral it, hypocrisy. It, it you kind know? of feels like they're, – they're, what feels like happening right now is the hollowness is becoming – is being laid bare a bit. Yeah, they're hollow in their core, and so they kind of collapse in. They're not so. wrong. Yeah. The ideas aren't wrong. The 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 purity and the the outrage and all the emotional nonsense under it is deeply hollow. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and and I think that's hard to sustain. And, and I mean, the one good part of our sort of political system is that it requires coalitions and sort but of we can't seem to do that. Which means, though, that although these people have sort of figured out how to get lots of attention, yeah. they actually have not figured out how to govern in any way. So the, right. the system is it, – it is remarkable for like sort of how divisive things are, divided things are, the, the sort of swings in sort of one party's in control and the other – how essentially nothing has changed. Right. And I think that is sort of a, a great credit to the founders, which is yeah. that they did not want – this sort of pendulum swinging that it's so hard to pass. Like, yeah, so they, they, their biggest fear is was factions, yeah. tyranny of the majority, 
tyranny of the minority. And well, those were their big ones. I mean, and I really, would say probably like rapid change, right? Well, the, so, but like, that, but yes, so they wanted they wanted some buffering all over the place. Like, yeah, just in the sense, it's like the the House and the Senate. It's yeah. like the House is on a you know two year cycles, and the yeah. like that. It's it's just really hard to pass laws, and it's easier to not. It's easier to shoot down laws than it is to pass laws. Which Makes is it good. really hard for crazy movements and right. trends of the moment to sort of permanently change the landscape. One of the scariest things I. I find percolating around these days is the attempt to eliminate the electoral college. Oh I, yeah, sure. I, you are not going to solve this terrible problem by giving us more of like <laughs> like if you look at the the Democrats versus the Republicans. The reason that the the Democrats uh, the 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 Republicans have Trump and the Democrats have not been taken really over by a sort of a an outsider in that sense is like the super delegates, right? Yeah. Like that that there are. We think these sort of smoky back rooms where people make decisions are like inherently anti-democratic. Yeah. But actually they're kind of a check against – like like people go, oh, we need more direct democracy. Those same people are like, Brexit's a huge mistake. Right. It's like that's actually what happens yes. when representative governments just defer super complicated like uh, – uh, you know, difficult issues to just like yes or no, right? Like, yeah, the, that's the other. Th- I, the, I guess that would be the fourth thing they feared more than anything was direct democracy. Yeah, because they always fail. Yes, can we not learn from history? Direct democracies fail. It's really, I mean, look, it's really hard. Like, it would have been nice, you know, in 1860 if we could have had an up and down, even vote on whether we wanted to have slavery or not. Right. You know, and so we couldn't, right. and so we ended up going to war over it. Mm-hmm. Um. But at the same time, we're not like, you know, deciding. Right. So your point is, let's state it clearly. If it had been a direct democracy, then we could have voted out slavery. Probably. Easily. Yes. Easily. And in fact. Especially after the Mexican-American War when all those extra states came in, right? And that's actually the real conflict at the root of the Civil War, which is that the South is – had had rigged the system to be overrepresented yeah. overrepresented in our democracy. Well, and they wa- they wanted to have slavery in all those new states yes. in the West. That's what they well to to maintain that balance. Correct. Uh, and I th- have a theory because there's a weird something. Stephen A. Douglas, Stephen yeah, Stephen Douglas, uh, who is the famous Lincoln Douglas debater. Something fishy happened there because he was the harbinger of. You the, could argue it's all his fault. Yes, yeah, because he overnight repealed the Missouri Compromise and brought in the Kansas-Nebraska out, out of nowhere. But I will tell you something else that happened out of nowhere at the exact same moment. Okay, Stephen Douglas was the senator from Illinois. F- for the previous 40 years, St. Louis was the gateway to the West and was planning the railroad through St. Louis into the West. Okay. And with the repeal of the Missouri Compromise, Suddenly, it went through Chicago. Oh, instantly! Wow. And I thought, I, Stephen huh. Douglas, he did something, wow. some sort of very, weird deal. Yeah, so sure. please research that. Okay. Something happened, but, but, so, right? That that yeah, and that was sure. why, and that was why he invented his little theory about uh, you know the the decisions in the territory. They can discern you know, what they call yeah. that popular uh, sovereignty. popular sovereignty. Yeah, yeah. He, he. This is the aging brain yeah. with names. It's just fucking. It's so frustrating. But yes, he clung to popular sovereignty in spite of Lincoln's just t- 
taken him apart. He still clung to it because that was the deal to get the railroad. I'm sure of it. I'm, I'm just convinced of it. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, because it was overnight. St. Louis was just forsaken. The, huh. the, everything was yeah, about yeah, sure. going through St. Louis. And the and the, the um, covered wagon still went through St. Louis. Right. Everything went to all the, the supplies, all the provisions, the whole route west, Pony Express, whatever it was, St. Louis, overnight, up into the cold plains. Chicago. What the? Why would they put it up there? Right. Yeah. No. No. But. But. Yeah. I think people think uh, the it, only the only thing that mitigates against that is whether or not San Francisco was so important to them that they just were able to kind of pull that off because the the gold rush was happening around the same time. I, I think. I think the larger point is that people we have we have sort of people in the media we have sort of popular figures with politicians who are messing with shit that they don't have the un, the historical understanding yes. or this the the sort of constitutional understanding of how these things work so and let's so go they're, they're fucking with stuff I, yeah, that I, can't I be agree. unfucked with i totally agree with you and, and i just want to say again about the electoral college say what you will about your frustrations of living in these big cities and not having a commensurate vote with the population that you are a part of the opening sentence in the Constitution is we the people in order to make a more perfect union of the states. This is a union of states, yeah. not a democracy, yeah. a federal democracy. It's a union of states and the states have to be equally represented in this more perfect union. Now, if there's a more perfect way to make it, that would be a constitutional amendment. But yeah, but like look, it is it is crazy that Iowa matters so much and New Hampshire matters so much. Because it's this, a piece of this union. It, no, no, I'm, I'm just saying it's it's weird. It's a contract. It, it's weird that they matter so much. But what I think people are missing is that it's creating a system where they do have to go campaign. You have to run a national campaign instead. It, instead of just should, campaigning uh, by the in same San Francisco. Token, and, you're you're yes. correct, but by the same token, why should Iowa be in, under the whim of San Francisco or New York totally, City? Totally. That's, they, they have no power if you don't have an electoral college. Yeah. Right? They'll yeah. just be just washed asunder by, by the big city people who don't know what the Iowans need or what the farmers need or what their, their life looks like. We don't know. Yeah. So we can't represent, and that's why you have to have. Rep- anyway, we're going no, way down but, a rabbit but, hole. But here. I think I think my my sort of general frustration about where we are today is you have people writing things and they just don't know what they're talking it about. Doesn't and seem so the like argument, it. like like look at how I, I notice this by the way with biology, people are writing things about human behaviors, yeah. and, and with zero foundation in biology, as though it doesn't exist. Or, or it's like you you have people who complain about say in California that you know sort of property taxes are are sort of limited because yeah. this this ballot measure, yeah. and and it's like yeah it wasn't people in the government that came up with that right. right that's what happens when you give people the ability to vote directly on something that's in their immediate self interest yeah. but has long term repercussions and it's like the whole point of the system is that you and I don't have the time to figure out how these individual laws work so you ostensibly represent smart people to do those things yes, for people you. people I trust to do that for yes. me. Yeah. And, and so, like, just everyone is way too focused on these big problems yeah. uh, instead of focusing sort of on what's immediately in front of them. So, speaking of immediately in front of us, let's go back to stoicism. Again, okay. Ryan's at ryanholiday.net, at ryanholiday, H-O-1-L-I-D-A-Y. Stillness is the key, still on Amazon. Ego is the enemy, obstacles the way. Two million copies. Is that amongst the two books or three books? Uh, I think it's, it's like more like two, two and a half, yeah, across Fantastic. all of them. Uh, Schwarzenegger, Tom Brady, Jack Dorsey all read his books. 
And if you if you want to get your head around Stoicism, start with The Obstacles Away and read through his books. It's Then Ego is the Enemy and then Stillness is the Key. So you run Partially Examined Life, which is my favorite philosophy did, podcast. Yeah. And they were sort of assailing you. They seemed – not West so much, but the other ones seemed like – they seem to be prejudiced against Stoicism as a non-philosophy philosophy just because there's no internally cohesive argument that, that is a part of Stoicism. Is that, actually, is that what they were getting on you about? Yeah, and I'm actually kind of writing about this now. I'm doing this book that's a biography of all the major Stoic figures. Mm. And Jesus, how far back do you go? Because uh, from the beginning, so they're, they're random ones. It's from Zeno to Marcus Aurelius. There's so. nothing on Zeno, is there? Yeah, there's a, there's plenty. Uh-huh. Uh, but but that that my point is that. You know, people maybe read the Wikipedia page. They don't understand. They don't see this person as a flesh and blood human, right? And my sort of opening sentence in the book is that for way too long we've cared about what philosophers have thought and said, when really this doesn't matter at all. What matters is what they did. So, like, why should that's we, a pretty hard argument wh- to make right should, at the top? Why should we give a shit about Rousseau if he's a he's child an abuser? I know, you know like, we shouldn't, but right. But he was a smart dude with some interesting arguments, right? And so, so I think. What I love about Stoicism, and I think maybe what some of the sort of more academic philosophers find objectionable about it, is that there isn't that – Cato doesn't write anything down. He's just a philosopher by the decisions he makes as a human being. Yes. And so that is less fun to dissect, you know? And, right. So you have, and, you have to pull out the philosophy from the behavior. Which is, by the way, how I think it should be. What is the point of philosophy if it's not driving behavior? Like how to live life. Yeah, what's the point of the ideas if they're not making life better? Well, to be, to be fair, just to push back a little bit, some of it is to try to understand – I mean, the history is so long. I mean, some of it was to understand our psychology and you know, how, what's, sure, what's, sure. Re, what's real and what's not, how to find truth, what is truth, and no, it's I, a I little th- different. I think, I think that there's certainly a place – I almost wish we could split the two off. You know, if so well, we, – That's what happened, right? We Psychology split off and yeah. then physics split off. And, right. but, but, but for whatever reason, philosophy is kind of – Maybe it's ghetto- time for a new split. Philosophy has been kind of ghettoized and like, how do we know we're not living in a computer simulation? Right. Like, how do, how do we know we exist? Right. You know, and these are, I which, think these are which, interesting questions that geniuses have come up with interesting takes on. But if you're, you know, a mother of three yeah. sitting in your kitchen trying to figure out how to do, make, make good on your life, what does this do for you? Right? right. And, and to me, that's what stoicism is about. Stoicism is, you know, Seneca, being called to serve in Nero's regime and trying to figure out these competing obligations, right? Or competing, you know, making the best of a bad situation. It's, right. it's, it's Epictetus trying to make sense of slavery. You know, it's, it's, it's existing in the real world and making hard choices inside the real world. Yeah, this issue of, you know, are we in a, in a simulation or not got picked up by Heidegger and those guys, the phenomenologists. Uh-huh. And they thought that was a scandalous question because all you have is experience. And so they became yeah. the phenomenologist. And that was the one direction to go with it, right? And you're saying, you're saying no, 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 that's a waste of time. Well, wait, that, let's say we are, right? Let's say we're living in a computer simulation. How do we make it the best possible computer well, simulation? Yeah, no, what, what do you do with this information? Right. Should, you, it, it, should you kill yourself? Right. You know, like what should you do, right? right? It, it, like I think that the Stoics were certainly smart enough to kick around any of these things, but they were like – I don't have time for that. I'm 
I'm the emperor. You well, know? They, they go, interestingly, they, they usually end up, right, with virtue, and virtue is living a certain kind of life and it's living a certain, having a certain kind of, what should we call it? It's excellence, it's translated yeah. as, but that's kind yeah. of a weird word to use, a certain kind of ability in, in living the certain the good life, right? But uh, what I found interesting is they never distilled down to more basic question about why serving humans is what the why behind that? Why that's a necessary part of the good life? It certainly is, and everyone always gets there. Psychologists get there. Yeah. We all get there. I, I, you know, I'm an evolutionary biologist by training, and so to me, it's like, oh, it's the best way to keep the species going and pushing the genes forward. That's it. It works. Well, the Stoics do. They have these two terms. One is sympatheia, and the other is like oikiosis. Uh, I'm terrible at the Greek pronunciations, but they're sort of oikia is like home, right? Yeah, we have a natural affinity for each other. I was telling Adam, we have oikophobia now. There's there's something they've they've seen. You should read about this. Oikophobia is called, which is that there's an actual phenomenology in Western culture that when it it goes through its existential crises, then it starts turn. The more egalitarian, the more open, the more it starts to look in on itself and hate itself and try to destroy itself. So it's fear of home, oikophobia. It, but but so the Stoics sort of believed that like everyone had a role, and you maybe you didn't choose that role. You didn't choose to be emperor. You didn't choose to be a senator. You didn't choose to be a soldier. But the the sort of what life. Like, the, so it's the, like the Rawlsian notion of you're you're born into whatever you're born into. Yeah, that with we whatever sort of genetic each have this, that We each have a, like a personal daemon or a genius, and then it was on you to fulfill that thing. But that that to neglect that. That's an interesting. Th- Thought. Wait a minute. Let, let's because yeah. we don't really today. We would take more of a Rawlsian. I think it's Rawls, which is, says that you're thrown into the world and you don't get to choose where you're thrown in. And is that fair? And yes. With, with what? And you're and they're saying no, it's not fair. But there's a core daimon, demon. What do we call it? Th- that you have to fulfill regardless of that circumstance. Yes. Yes. That's kind of interesting. Yeah, that's that, empowering. That, that we each have a it, like the Stokes sort of believe we're all actors in a play. Yeah, that we didn't write the play. Same thing as a we, same thing as a computer simulation. Yeah, right? we, we but we do control how we act in that role. And I mean, you see actors all the time in terrible movies do an amazing job, yeah. right? Because they realize like I don't control how the director cuts this movie. I don't control. The Stokes were so focused on what do I control, mm. and and you don't control how the other actors do. You don't control the marketing campaign. You don't. Don't control when it rolls out. You don't control whether you know the, the the movie is banned or the movie is beloved. Like you just control. Did you show up every day and pour yourself entirely into the role? I think it's easier to say in a you know a society like Rome where where it was so much more stratified and hierarchical and there was n- less sort of social mobility. So it's hard to say in the modern terms like where you. You do have the ability. What that fulfillment meant then? Yes, like, like being the best slave, which was epic. What Epictetus would do? Yes, because there's no real path to not be a slave. Yeah, now right? we would say cast that off and yes. build into something else. But you know, Marcus, Marcus's father is not the emperor. Right. It, it, the emperor Hadrian sees him, him yeah. and and because he doesn't have a male heir and adopts him and so it, like, there's this scene where he like weeps when he find, he's not looking forward to this at all he's like this is a horrible job no one wants this job but he sort of realizes like this is what life has chosen for and it me. was dangerous then too right they, yeah they did not live long 
right? It, it, when you really re- hear about how the Senate conducted itself in Rome, they would just haul people off and just slaughter them in front of the Senate and go, hey, you're next if yeah. you don't vote yeah, with me. You get killed by your yeah. own guards. Like it was uh, not a – it's not a great – not a great job. It's crazy. Um, and so, yeah, so it, it was about How that didn't unravel, I don't understand. That, to me, that was – when I read about some of the violence, just like, oh. Yeah, did you read The Storm Before the Storm? No. Oh, you would love it. it I think it? it's Mike Duncan. Um, it's basically, it's like we... You leave me with all this reading uh, to I'll do. write this down <laughs> right, as right, well. and th- yeah. you Give me both of them. Yeah. Yeah. But, but his, his point is like, we, we see it as like Julius Caesar wakes up one day and decides to overthrow the Roman yeah, Republic. Yeah, no, I know that. It doesn't work true. that way. No, no. It, it's like a hun- there's a hundred years of yeah. decay and violence yeah. and precedent breaking on both sides and, and a collapse of what they call the mas morium or the, mm. the traditions. Mm. And as precedents and norms break down, eventually someone is sort of forced to do what Julius Caesar does. So he looks at those hundred years is a very haunting book to read right now. Does it sound familiar? Yeah, you're just like, oh. Here we are. Crap. <laughs> yeah. uh, but on the other hand, it's reassuring because you're like, oh, the decline and fall of Rome took like 800 years. And, and was there any – did he get into the cultural mixing and all that stuff too? Yeah. And yeah, yeah it's like there's immigration debates and there's yeah. citizenship debates yeah. and there's you know income inequality debates. It's like, oh, history is the same thing happening over and over right. and Right, humans again. are not that different. No. And Machiavelli wrote about this too. Yeah. He studied that and just studied the cycles of all that. Yeah. And and that that was his that the prince was actually just a book about essentially the Julius Caesar piece. Yes. Of these evolutions. It wasn't his recommendations no. for how history works. It's just if when the, if when the time role, comes, yeah, when yeah. the time comes, here's how to do it. Well, you had to go to this idea of an, the, the analogy of being like an actor in a play. He's basically writing a book about sort of how to play the villain. You know, he's like, if, if history is calling on you to be the prince, yeah. here's how that goes. He's not, he's like, I'm not saying it's a good idea or yeah. a good thing. In fact, he sort of almost loses his life fighting against that very thing. Well, although it just happens that there's some people in power that eh, they might like to hear about this yes. <laughs> at the time. Yes. That's, I think that's why his reputation gets so screwed up. Yeah. It, and, and he happens to point at Cesare Borgia as the most ideal version of the prince. Yeah, cut people in half, leave them in the town square. No big deal. There's a crazy – I thought it would make a good movie. There's a, a scene where Machiavelli, Cesar Borgia, and Da Vinci are like in the same castle for like three weeks. Is that true? It happened? Yeah, yeah. Wow. And just like hanging out and <laughs> working together. Whoa. And uh, you're just like, wow. That's the other thing. Not only is history the same thing happening over and over again, but it's very small. Like – you wouldn't think those three guys knew each other, right. but actually they knew each other and worked together. And you're like, "What? Oh, I got to see crazy. that. I got to see that movie." Yeah. And I'm speaking, of which I started reading the essays. And again, the names are just so hard when the aging brain. Uh, the huge book of essays that you were recommending from who? 12th century. Uh, bearded dude. <laughs> Uh, who was an essayist? Just wrote lots and lots. Oh, Montaigne. Of Montaigne. Yes. Uh, or Montaigne. I, yeah. I had trouble. Yeah, he's brilliant. I know, but I had trouble. I could. I couldn't make it. I, there's a. I, uh, I didn't. I got lost in it. I did I give you that? Going. I gave you that little book, right? That little biography. Yes, of him? and it, it sent me to the big one. Okay, but uh, that's fascinating because you're like, oh, in the 1500s. The world is tearing itself apart. This really smart guy goes. There's no place for me here. I'm just gonna retreat to my books and read and think. And, and traveled around, right? Yeah. Too. Yeah. But it's like, oh, I know that guy. You know, like <laughs> like it's very this is what humans have unfortunately been having to do for a very long time. Right. 
What did you take away from him? I, I, I couldn't. I couldn't get a. I just found him to be very curious yeah. and sort of. I think he is obviously very self-absorbed, mm. but he's just looking at himself and asking questions that no one had really bothered to ask for like a thousand years. Right, and he sort of is the first. The so just even the idea he invents the first person essay that does not exist as a medium until he comes along. Right, it's and not autobiography. It's just sort of a essay. just like what do I think? Yeah, like he's think he's sort of asking himself like what do I think about X? Yeah, you know, and people had not asked that question since the Greeks and Romans. Well, to some extent, uh, the other confessions, the this the autobiography of Saint Augustine. Augustine, yeah. Uh, that was really the first autobiography. You get right sure. down to it, and and if you read it the way I did, it's the first big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. It is is at, he's, yeah, he's, he's a sex a, addict. He's a, a sex addict. He's an alcoholic. His mom's an alcoholic, and he writes the big book. It's it, the first 150 pages is the big. He has a moment of clarity. He has a spiritual moment. He does an, an unflinching inventory. He shares it with other sure, people. Sure. Yeah, I mean, it is absolutely the big book. Yeah, and it's and, and he gets better. Yes. Which is extraordinary, right? Yeah. Well, the, the difference between sort of him and Montaigne is Montaigne's like, what do I think? And I'm not going to hate myself for it. You oh. know, Augustine is like, this is what I think, but all of this is wrong. I'm and, sinful. I'm and horrible. I'm, I'm horrible. Yeah. And there is this sort of self-loathing in Augustine that is quite sad. It, it is, but he gets lifted by his spiritual yes. moment. You know, it's like humans are debased, horrible creatures, <laughs> and we are saved by this yeah. whatever. and. I, I like them both. <laughs> yeah. Both no, great. no. I think so. So let's go back to the partially okay. examined life. So those guys are attacking you for a lack of a consistent philosophical framework. Yeah. What? How did you? How do you answer them? Well, I think I think the coherent uh, philosophical outlook for the Stoics is is sort of built around four ideas, which I think we talked about last time I was here. But it's the the four virtues of Stoicism are courage, justice, wisdom, and we moderation. Did. We did, and the, those are four really simple ideas but that intersect and, and balance each other out in sort of infinitely complex ways. Like, Aren't so, they just coaching? Isn't that just... But that's actually kind of the, the, at the core of Stoicism is that it, it's like, oh, yeah, this is, this is supposed to just coach you to do the right thing in the right. right way at the right time in the right place. And that goes back to Aristotle as well. But, you know, the, the, the Stoics, like, were really fond of sports. And so it's like about hitting the target with the javelin. Like, like that's what this is for. It's not for creating this beautiful explanation of the universe or, you know, explain – although there were Stoics that, you know, explored logic and physics and stuff. Oh, really? Um, Which ones? Yeah, uh, all, all of them. I mean, really? there was um, – the, the, the three disciplines of Stoicism were logic, physics, and ethics. But as it went on – it became especially as sort of Greece becomes Rome, yeah. and then this becomes about running the world. Yeah, ethics is sort of the only part of it that matters. You and, can't and, be and, the emperor on physics, right? And to be fair, Romans were pragmatists. Yeah, when you get right down to it. that, was their sort of they were much like Americans that way, like can do, solve problems, blah blah blah. Yeah, and and like I think you know this is like a weird thing to, to go back to geopolitics. People are like, oh, you know, these other countries have all this these cool things. It's like, yeah. Because we have the biggest army in the world, you know, like they have these things because they don't actually have to worry about Russia invading them because right. that's our problem. Right. You know, like they – and so I think Rome, you know, you could see Rome as an empire, but you could also see Rome as being responsible for the entire world, right? And so there there wasn't time for these 
sort of like like there's this famous scene in early in stoicism where where one of the one of the early stoics is, appears in rome and you know he argues like one day about the importance of justice and then the next day he argues against the importance of justice and cato the elder who's cato's grand, great grandfather is like a appalled by this and he's like get these people out of here and he banishes them from rome that's really called sophistry right like, yeah but his point was like just answer the fucking question like it's just as good or bad right you know don't argue it both ways and i think for like when you are running the world or when you are existing in the real world all you really have time for are the pragmatic questions about how to solve problems yeah you're you don't doesn't matter to you whether we live in a computer simulation whether justice is good like you have to answer the question so there i think that the coaching is is actually a, a great sort of way into thinking about it it's like oh yeah these are these are people who were trying to not be corrupted by absolute power or these were people who are trying to you know keep their temper in check the, you know that's what it's for is happiness one way or another conceived one of the goals i think so i i think the stoics you know, they don't talk about happiness as directly as some of the other schools. And, and I think, by the way, we've mistranslated happiness over it's, the years. It's, I think, for them, it's sort of flourishing, yes. you know, yes. the more the Aristotelian it, and, sense. And, and Stoics are in that zone. Yeah. yeah. I, I think, like, for the Stoics, it, ha- happiness was this thing that could ensue when you got rid of all the things that got in the way of happiness, which were— so, Right. So freedom and living a certain kind of life and, and protecting your inner core or whatever. And that's kind of what I'm talking about in stillness. There's this— Stoic concept of ataraxia or apatheia, which is like what happens when you're no longer jerked around by passions or anxieties or fears. Yeah, I was surprised by this book because I don't didn't think about stillness as a as a significant feature of stoicism. Yeah, and I think that's why you probably brought it out. Yeah, I I think when you think stillness, you think like Eastern, mm-hmm. and and then you know Marx realizes his book is titled Meditations. Like, yeah, he's not sort of sitting there, you know, you know, counting his breath. But he is trying to get to a place where he's not jerked around by urges or fears or, you know, impulses. He's trying to get to a place of of calmness and peace. Has it made you happy? Stillness? No, not stoicism. just stillness, but stoicism. I think so. I think so. I mean, I think it, it's, 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 helped me, it's helped me manage my life. Do you have any examples of where you've had challenges living a stoic philosophy or, or – you know, where the stoicism conflicted with what you wanted to do, something like that? Yeah, I mean, I think day to day, it's just a challenge to like live up to the ideas, right? It's right. like it, all, all this stuff is simple, but not really easy. Um, I mean, this, I think one, one of the things I've taken from stoicism is that there's a lot omitted from it because it doesn't, they felt like they were, they were talking about the things they felt needed to be talked about and believe the other things would take care of itself. So if, if you see Marx Aurelius's meditations as, reminders from a person to himself yes like my to-do list doesn't tell me to eat food or go to the bathroom like i handle that on my own right you know so he's like talking about the things he's struggling with right so he doesn't need to write down like hey jokes are funny you know or like sex feels good yeah he's actually reminding himself like hey sex feels good but it'll make you do things you regret so be careful Mm -hmm. you know so so it i think um there's when I see stoicism, so I don't see stoicism as being anti-happiness. I just see it as like it, it assuming that you'll figure out happiness on your own, but we're going to talk about these other things. Well, I, I would see it as anti 
hedonic happiness. Yeah. The, the euphoria is fun, but is sort yeah. of their, their constant refrain. It's like, yeah, yeah, that's good, but that can lead you in the wrong way. It can end up in bad places, which is good because it's true. I, th- I think the, the, you know, being a, a new dad, stoicism is that that's probably the trickiest there when you're dealing with something that's so sort of biologically overwhelming and sort of emotionally overwhelming in, in a good in a good way. Parenting. Parenting. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the, there's there's less about stoicism there. You know, there's less in stoicism there about, you know, how, how do you like Marcus Aurelius talks about like kissing your child at night and going like you might not wake up in the morning yeah. and sort of stealing himself for that because he lost eight children. Yeah. Like you're just like, holy shit. Yeah. Like, like think about that, what that would do to a person to yeah. lose eight children. Mm. And so there, there is less sort of about, I would say let happiness appears more than joy in stoicism. And to me, joy is sort of what life is all about. And so I think that that is a, a tricky subject in stoicism. Joy. Yeah. Just not, where does it come from? Well, How do you cultivate it? How yeah, do you appreciate it when it's there? It's interesting to me to point out that the the intersubjective is left out of the descriptions, yet they're telling you how to navigate it without – I guess they're navigated in a virtuous way is what they would say. Would say. Yeah. So, so you end up – Conducting yourself in such a way that the interpersonal life kind of takes care of itself. They I sort think of so. I think they sort of imagine you're going to be okay in that, which flies in the face of our current era when everyone's traumatized and can't handle being in a close relationship. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. So it's interesting. That's sort of where I live my life is in that trying to sort out those traumatic interpersonal cords. But even there, stoicism can help. So you yeah. don't. So you don't. You know, because part of being a traumatic trauma survivor is you'll you make bad choices, you repeat yeah. things, and stoicism can help you avoid that. Well, that's, I've been thinking about that more because, and you've been helping me with it on this daily dad thing that I've been doing. So I do like an email every day uh, about parenting, sort of inspired by ancient wisdom. It's a podcast too, but just you. On the one hand, you, we think like, oh, parenting was so different in the past, and at the same time, oh, it's no. exactly the same. Yeah. People are struggling with it the exact same way. Yeah, but. But, are, you, are you looking at the history of that? Are yeah. You, oh, yeah. no kidding. Yeah, just just it, it was different, but but the same same emotional stuff. Yeah, material. Yeah, like Marcus yeah. Rillis had a crappy kid, you know, and and, and the thing we don't have the, what we've been uh, sort of detached from that most parents had to deal with prior to about 1950 was the death of a child. Yes. Even in this country, at the turn of the century, the 20th, turn of the 20th century, more than 50 percent of parents had a death of a child. It's why it always drives me crazy when yeah. somebody talks about incarnation. Why aren't you just incarnated? The vast, 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 vast majority of, of humans throughout human history were people that didn't make it past age three. Yeah. Like by orders and orders and orders of magnitude. So if we're going to talk about reincarnation, how come I was reincarnated as a two-year-old that dies? Because <laughs> that's most of humanity. That's, oh, that's pretty much everybody. Yeah. So. No, it's, it's, uh, it's just – I don't know. It's, uh, it's, it's fascinating and, and hu- sort of humbling. But – I think the other thing is that the Stoics were like the job of the parent is to sort of teach virtue to the children, not to help them get ahead in life, right? And so I think looking at at, at that sort of thing historically has been really interesting for me too. Like, like kids used to learn Latin so they could read Seneca in the original, and now we're like, here's a book about pizza, you know, <laughs> like you know, like just the sort of 
patronizing and infantilization of kids is also really interesting to I me. think we've gone too far down that path. Yeah. Yeah. I interrupted you when you started talking about Seneca. Give me a couple. I, you started getting kind of enthusiastic about him and his life, and, and, oh, I, and I take took you off the track. To, to Give me, me a couple Se- minutes Se- on that. Seneca is just like this sort of fascinatingly modern figure. Yeah. I mean, like he's incredibly talented, incredibly bright, comes from a great family, and then he gets banished unfairly by is he an his emperor. Hands cut off? Isn't that him? Or that was no. the other one, Cicero? Uh, yes, yeah, Cicero gets his hands okay. cut off. Um, but he, he's sent. He's you know he's sent away, which then was a big deal if you got to be exiled. Yeah, yeah oh, of course. Deal. So he comes, he, but so he, he spends like eight or nine years in exile, and then his his invitation back to Rome is, do, will you tutor this young kid Nero who is in line for the throne? And he says, sure. You know, this is my ticket back. And he doesn't realize quite yet that Zero, Nero is deranged. And he's this sort of steadying influence for much of Nero's life. At the same time, he becomes incredibly wealthy in service of it. And is, you know, is it complicit in all sorts of unphilosophical things? It's just this fascinating story. Nero fascinates me a little bit, too, because we, we have a cartoon version of him. Mostly through the Christians. And, and I'm guessing he's not as bad as, as, as... I think he's probably worse. Probably worse. Okay. I mean, like, he he murders his own mother, you know, he murders his one of his wives, he kills about, like, eight different Stoics. But... Uh, but he does it when they're threatening him, though, right? Well, no, he was delu- he was delusional. Oh, he actually was delusional. Yeah, he was delusional that they were threatening him. Uh, do um, we know that was a delusion? Or yeah, I mean, sort of towards the end, there there are some legit conspiracies against him because he's a deranged psychopath, uh-huh. uh, but was just completely incompetent. Sort of obsessed with with like poetry and and performing. It, he didn't want to be emperor either. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? He wanted to be a famous singer. Uh, and uh, yeah, just a, sort of a fascinating fucked up guy. And so I think what's so modern, especially right now about Seneca's role is Seneca is undoubtedly thinking, I don't want any part of this, but I don't do it. Some, yeah, Somebody worse do will do yeah, it. Yeah. And, and so there's this tension of... You know, is he an? Does he write about that? Does he have a lot of? Towards the end, when he sort of leaves Nero's service, he he starts to talk about how, when the state is sort of beyond redemption, that you can't serve it anymore. And and Nero is the state, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. but and 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 eventually Nero comes at him and he has to kill himself. But but yeah, it's just it's just so complex. I mean, like Mattis, who is a big Stoic fan, General Mattis is like. He didn't want to be Trump's secretary of defense. They could not be more different as human beings. But he's like, who's going to do the – he's like, you don't choose – this is yeah. that idea of like yeah. you get chosen for a role and you do the role to the best of your ability yeah. provided you don't have to compromise your principles. And again, we, we are not able to wrap our heads around people operating by a personal code. Meaning? Well, like, like uh, liberals hate Mattis for oh, serving Trump. Right. And it's like – it's so the same thing as, as uh, Mitt Romney. Yeah, so, yeah. It's like we can't wrap our head around somebody yeah, operating by a personal code. Right. And so from my perspective, not being able to see gray, yeah. that's a psychological problem. Yeah. When things are either all good or all bad, th- that there's all kinds of theories about that. But it sort of goes ultimately down to this thing called good mom, bad mom, where you right. see you know your, your important sure. attachment figure is either all good or all bad. And not a flawed human that's doing yeah. the best she can and meeting sure. your needs sometimes. We can't do it. We're yeah. too traumatized. 
Interesting. Yeah. yeah, that's right. I, I see it more as a historical problem. Like people just don't understand their history. So they think history was black and white before. Right. So it, you know, it's like, no, this is really complicated. Yes. And, and let's sort of leave it there is that I think that's fundamentally something you would take away from Stoicism was that humans are complicated and nuanced creatures. Oh, yeah. And this is an attempt to not right the ship so much as navigate the waters. Yes. Uh, And that for each of us, uh, life is a navigation and a challenge. And I hope most people want to do the best they can at it, not just for themselves, but for others, which to me as a biologist, that helps move the genes forward, man. That's that's really our goal here. Yeah. Move your genes forward. That really, when you get right down to it, that's what we're here for. And that's okay with me. Yeah. I don't mind serving humanity. I think it's a great amazing species that's done amazing stuff. The idea that we, you know, Jordan Peterson talks about this too, the idea that we've only been this this blight on human, on, the, on the globe and that we're just this horrible, yeah. you know, uh, scar on the earth. No, no, no. This has been an extraordinary thing, humanity. This incredible thing that is so unlikely to have happened and, and so much richness and so much meaning. You can just, you can do what you want with that word. Yeah. But I think there's meaning there. And the meaning is what it means to humans, and uh, living a certain kind of life is a key, key, key part of that. And Stoics help us do that with the concept of virtue. And what are the four again? Courage, wisdom, wisdom, justice, justice. and moderation. We got to talk about justice one of these times because I don't really understand their their version of justice. It, I understand Plato's, yeah, but I don't understand theirs. Yeah. Give, me, give me a phrase, a sentence. Well, I, I think that's, then I got to go. We think virtue, or we think justice is the justice system. Yeah, not no, sort no, of. No. I think for them, it's fairness and equality and doing right and helping others and serving the common good. It's, so it's so justice things. would be more in the zone of living the right kind of life, living uh, the right kind of life, and 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 doing what's right for others or whatever. Yeah, doing your duty, serve, being of service. I mean, to, Dante had this big idea of justice, right? Is it that kind of justice? I don't think so. I mean, that is the interesting. It's like I wish there was one place where they just defined what these things are. Yeah. They did a good job defining what these things were not. Yeah, but not a great job defining what they were. And but that's the tradition that we carry on. In the meantime, stillness is the key. It's at Amazon, the Daily Stoic podcast, and the Daily Stoic. Sign up at dailystoic.com. Dailystoic.com. Rand, as always, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. See you soon. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes. Only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. Mm-hmm.